Uh, We've been talking about the book of Genesis, and I think it's important because Genesis answers questions, or not completely answers them, but at least addresses questions that every human being has, regardless of your faith position or your background. Everyone asks the questions that Genesis addresses. Now, I've gone to labor to point out that I do not think Genesis is a scientific book. I don't think it's about material origins. Um, And I think if we go that way, we start losing the meaning because that wasn't Moses' point in writing the book of Genesis. So we we don't want to force it into a scientific uh, paradigm, make it speak to things that it's not speaking to. So I've been telling you that The book of Genesis is not about how things happen, but why. And it addresses some of these deep, deep issues of suffering, of sin, of why the world is the way it is. Why are we living in this world? People are asking, why, you know, why did God allow the shooting at Walmart, 22 people, or in Dayton, Ohio, nine people? Why did he allow terrorists to fly airplanes into uh, buildings and kill innocent people? Why are there these injustices and unrighteousness all over the world? Why do we see it? Why do we even see it in the community of faith among ourselves? Why do some of you, and me as well, why do we struggle with particular sins that are just particular to us and we just seem to not be able to get any traction and we can become very frustrated. Genesis addresses these, I tell you, by, by the time you're in chapter 3 or 4, you have been, you've had a lot of stuff told to you and I'm trying to do my best to get the most important parts out. At the same time, we need to understand, we, I, I just read, a, a, was reading Preparing for this, I'm having to read a lot, as you can imagine. I was reading one great biblical scholar this past couple weeks, and and he said this. He said, if you go to your Bible and you read it, and you don't come away thinking, my goodness, that is the most bizarre book I have ever seen. What is going on? If you don't come away with that, then you're probably not thinking deeply enough about it because the Bible has in it some very bizarre, strange things like what we're going to read in a moment. And I'm going to try to explain to you and give you um, a tool that I think will help you as you read your Bible and you hit these passages that just seem to go, what in the world is he talking about? So let's look at Genesis chapter 5. We're going to look at the last few verses of of the chapter, uh, starting with 28, and just the first eight verses of chapter 6. I'm skipping all the genealogies, thank God. And uh, it's printed in your bulletin. Uh, If you want to follow along there, if you have your scriptures, you can read it there. And so now hear the God's word, starting in Genesis 5, 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, 
Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives, any of those they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide or contend in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the dawn and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was very great in the earth and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's word. Okay, so what in the world is going on? Well, the book of... Let me, let me put it this way, and I'll just try to give you this right off the bat. Maybe this will help you just in the concept itself. We're going to talk about Moses and the internal combustion engine. That's kind of funny. You should chuckle at that. Moses and the internal combustion engine. And then we're going to talk about... Uh, a rather bitter contrast that you should see in this passage before you move on to the final, what I'm going to say is the final point, at least I'm going to make, which is the revelation of God's breathtaking grace. And so we'll look first at Moses and the internal combustion engine. Think about this for a minute. Imagine that either you were able to go back into time where Moses was and meet with him out there on the plains of Moab at Moab and maybe have a Starbucks together, I don't know. Uh, or maybe you bring him here into this century in this world and you sit down and you said to Moses, I want to explain to you the internal combustion engine. I want to explain to you how the internal combustion engine uh, works. What, what do you think Moses would say? What's an engine? What's internal combustion? And so you would have to back up and you'd have to start explaining about gasoline. Well, what's gasoline? Well, we make it from oil. Oh, how do you do that? Well, we send it to a refinery. Oh, what's a refinery? Well, it's this thing. And we try to explain all of the refining of oil crude into gasoline and, and then how it goes in the car. And then you go to a pump and you pump it out and he says, what's a pump? And, and you say, well, and then the gas gets shot by, by an injection system or a carburetor, if you have an old car, and, and it, it goes into the spark plug, into the, the, into the, head, into the valve, and, and blows up a spark of electricity, and pow, combustion, what's, what's a spark plug? Do you get the picture? You see, we're talking about literature that comes to us from thousands and thousands of years ago. And we try to impose on these things our modern 20th, 21st century, whatever, 
uh, ideas and thoughts and patterns and, and pictures. We try to put it onto these things. And so whatever Moses was talking about when it's talking about sons of God, daughters of men, uh, uh, Nephilim, and all these other things, he's talking about something they completely would understand that made total sense to them that is often very confusing to us who are modern, modern people. Uh, Dr. John Walton, uh, Richard Pratt, uh, any number of Old Testament scholars, the ones I've been reading lately, uh, Brueggemann, Walke, anybody you pick, they will all tell you that one of the great difficulties of reading the Old Testament, or New Testament for that matter, but especially Old Testament, is you've got to be able to go back into that world and somehow leave some of our modern stuff aside and try to see what they saw. That's why I tell you in our theology classes that understanding who the original author was, the original audience, the original intent, is key to understanding what's going on with these big pictures of old ancient world. So let's talk about them like this. How, think in terms of Moses and the internal combustion engine. Forget the internal combustion engine and try to think like Moses, whatever he was talking about. And let's look first at these long ages of men, all of chapter 5, these extraordinary ages of men. Now, as you know, scholars, uh, I was telling the Sunday school class this morning, uh, Archbishop James Usher tried to calculate, Isaac Newton tried to calculate with mathematical and arithmetical uh, calculations by adding up years and backing up to... Uh, sometime to find out when did creation start. And James Usher believed he figured it out arithmetically by counting back generations and adding and subtracting and multiplying and dividing and doing higher calculus or whatever. These are brilliant men. I'm not making fun of them. They were something else. And he came up with a date and that date has stuck in a a lot of the world is still thinking in terms like this. The day that God said light be or let there be light was the evening of October 23rd, which would have been 6 p.m. October 27th, no, October 22nd, 4004 B.C. Well, there you go. That's when the world was created, 4,000 years ago plus into the New Testament 6,000 years ago. And for some reason, we just have locked on to that, not understanding that these long ages of men could, be, could mean any number of things. They may actually mean that they lived 900 years. I don't know. But we cannot make those kind of calculations because these genealogies, if you start to look at them closely and you start to look at how they are compared with other genealogies of the same, you start noticing they're leaving people out. They're not including everybody. It cannot possibly be arithmetical. So it can be anything. It could mean anything. You could go from meaning literal to complex, bizarre, symbolic, I've read some of those and I don't agree with those, to just saying, well, it's all poetry, maybe it's just poetic, I don't know about that, there's ways to poke Some Some uh, scholars have tried to say, well, it's astrological, it has to do with the movement of the planets and the sun, moon, and stars and all that. 
We're not going to figure that out. We're not going to know. It made sense to Moses. It made sense to his original audience. And maybe all it means is they lived an awfully long time and had lots of offspring. And if that's true, fine. If it's not, fine. What is the point? What is Moses communicating to us about the world at this time with the genealogy of chapter 5 and and then moving on into chapter 6 with this proliferation of evil? What is he saying? That life, you remember he created life. He breathed into man and he became a living soul and he was imbued with the image of God. And life was the power that was running the universe. And then death came in and started to impose itself onto this world. And we start seeing a pattern of life succumbing, listen carefully, life is succumbing to death. People's lives are old, but they're also getting shorter and shorter. And we're seeing in before our very eyes already in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we're seeing the results of the curse and the imposition of death on the creation. God, in some sense, and I'm not saying he's, he's completely absent, he's not, but in some sense he has stepped back and he's letting mankind create the world. He created the world, good. Now he's saying, you did this, I gave you authority over it, Let's see what you do with it. And look at what happens. Death. More death. Lives shorter and shorter and shorter. And then in verse 3, look what he says in verse 3. My spirit shall not abide or contend in man forever. His days shall be 120. Now again, this could mean several things. It could mean literally that people are not going to exceed 120. That's the border. That's the end. You're going to die at 120. But we know there are people that have lived longer than that. Abraham lived longer than that. And some of the patriarchs lived longer than that. So we know that that may not be exactly what he's saying, but he is making a statement. It may mean that's not the lifespan of man, but that's, as, that's how much longer I'm going to wait before I put an end to this proliferation of evil, until I put a stop to its rampant progress in the world because of how he describes it in the next few verses. My spirit shall not abide or contend in his lifespan, or it could be until the time of the flood. So either one is fine, doesn't matter. They both work and they both mean basically the same thing. Walter Brueggemann, in his commentary on Genesis, brilliant Old Testament scholar, said this, and I think he's catching the point for us. God will not endlessly, what he's saying about the 120 is, God will not endlessly permit his life-giving spirit to enliven those who are disordering his world. The breath of life remains his to give and to recall. And so he's saying something about the world. The world is plunging into uncontrolled chaos. It's, think about this. It's decreating. It's uncreating. God created and it was to proliferate good and multiply and plenish the earth, fill it up. And now it's going the other way. Death is encroaching. Darkness is coming back. Chaos is coming. And look 
how it is manifesting itself. Verses 1 through 4, look at this. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were very beautiful, so they start taking wives. And from those, that union, whoever these sons of God are and daughters of men are, whoever they are, and we're going to talk about that in a second, their offspring are nephil, nephil, which means in Hebrew, fallen. Okay? Nephilim means plural, fallen, lots of fallen. Okay, so there are fallen people, Nephilim, who are looking out and they're seeing the daughters of man. These are sons of God. They're seeing daughters of man and they're saying, wow, they're really beautiful. And they start taking wives. Now they're taking not one wife, not two. They're taking lots of wives. Remember, Lamech, the other Lamech from, the, from chapter 4, took two wives. And unless you make any mistake about this, God in no way is saying polygamy is all right. In fact, everywhere in the Bible where polygamy is, is practiced, it leads to disaster. So it is not an endorsement for polygamy, but it is a, it is a statement on what man is doing with the creation. Oppressive, tyrannical, evil, taking power over others, in this case over women who are weaker physically in some senses, and, and uh, men are stronger, but just by, by our size and power, we can beat up a woman. Some women can beat us up. But you get the point, right? I mean, there's this, there's this sense in which we're seeing evil proliferating. So who are the sons of God? Well, I'm going to give you real quickly three views that I think are, will make sense to you. The first one is this. The sons of God are often also called angels. And so these were angelic beings who looked at the earth and they saw these beautiful women and they said, we're going to come down and have intimate relations, intimacy with these women. So you have angels, angelic spiritual beings coming down, somehow embodying, I don't know what's going on, you have to watch Netflix if you want to find out. Uh, and, that they, and then they become, you know, married and have children. The children are these mixed up, things that are Nephilim. Okay, that's one view that comes from, to us from Apocryphal. Did any of you see the movie with Russell Crowe, Noah? Okay, that was from the Book of, no- book of Enoch, which is an Apocryphal book, and it has all of these, these stories, and they're really amazing, but they're, they're not biblical stories. The rabbinic literature is full of this, that they were angels. Uh, the church fathers, many of them believe they were angels. Some scholars even think that Peter himself and Jude in 1 Peter chapter 3 and Jude uh, verses 6 and 7 were referring to these angelic beings when they were talking about the angels that lost their first estate. All of that aside, we have to think, could it be angels? I'm going to say no. And I'm going to give you one reason. Because Jesus said no. Jesus said they don't marry and they don't have corporeal bodies and they don't have the equipment necessary to have intimacy. They're not that kind of being. So no matter what anybody else says, we're going to stay, I'm going to stay with that. Immaterial spirits do not have sex. There's no DNA that we know of 
to exchange. And Jesus said they don't do it. So we need to back off of that and say, let's let the scripture say, what, what could then Moses have been talking about? Second theory. The, these were Sethites. Sons of God are also called, we collectively as people of God are called sons of God. So was it Sethite men? These are the, the descendants of Seth looking out at the Canaan, Canaan, you know, Cain's offspring, his, wa- his uh, daughters, and saying, let's have intimacy with these people that are under the curse over here. And so then they have relations. And John Calvin believed this. Martin Luther believed this. And almost all of traditional Christianity has adopted this particular view that sons of God here are the descendants of Seth, the people that were calling upon God, and they were intermarrying with the other tribe out there from Cain, the fallen son, and that from them this offspring was Nephilim. They were these fallen people, these mighty warriors and tyrannical kings, and that uh, that's a second option. And that's okay. They were defiling. The point is that the covenant line is getting polluted and defiled. Third option is that these sons of God were just tyrannical kings of the ancient Near East who were probably marrying Sethite women because it uses the word daughters nine times in chapter 5, which is remarkable. So are these tyrannical kings who are calling themselves divine kings like Pharaoh and... uh, Uh, Others, uh, like uh, Nebuchadnezzar, they all believed they were sons of God, that they in some sense embodied the divine. And then they, because of their divine rights as sons of God, were able to then amass for themselves these royal harems, and we have archaeological evidence that this is all true, hundreds, thousands of women, and they would start to proliferate Children, because that's how they would defeat death. That's how they would control the world. If you had a lot of offspring, you could put them out into the world and take over the world. Does that sound familiar? Be fruitful and multiply. Does it sound like a corruption of the mandate to us to be fruitful and multiply? So these kings, these tyrannical kings, that view is held by Meredith Klein and a number of other Old Testament Scholars, and they say these are physically powerful, extremely violent, military, political men who are dominating their cultures. And if you read the ancient literature of Sumer and, and Ugarit and all of this, and even Egypt, th- these, these mighty warriors were unbelievable. When they say they were mighty men of renown, and it uses the Hebrew word for hero, it's not talking about Thor. It's talking about Loki. And those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, Thor was the good god, and Loki was his evil brother. Okay? So they both had amazing powers. But Loki was bad, Thor, eh. Pretty cool. All right. So it's possible that what Moses is communicating, and I think this is the point, again, rather than getting down in the weeds and trying to figure it all out, what he's saying is that these offspring, whatever they were, 
were evil, but immensely powerful. And they began to oppress the culture. They began to crush the world under their power and under their strength. They were not giants. That's something that came over to us from the Latin Vulgate and got translated into the King James, and it's just not the word. It, that Nephilim does not mean giant. It means fallen. So what he's talking about are oppressive powers, leaders, kings, military men who are oppressing women, oppressing other cultures, and dominating the world and taking it instead of in the way that Adam and Eve were to take it into fruitfulness and multiplying and beauty and glory and extending God's glory to the world, they were taking it down and down and down. The entrance into God's good creation of demonic, violent, and oppressive evil on a cosmic scale that was almost unlimited. I think if you look at the words he uses, and we're to step back, and I'm going to urge you to do this, and think of Moses and the internal combustion engine when you read all this. Don't get down in the weeds and try to figure out every detail. What is Moses telling us about that world? It was plunging, my friends, plunging into chaos in a way that we have never seen. Now, we've seen our world, and many of you remember World War II. It's getting less and less all the time. Many of us remember uh, I was born at the end of the Korean War, and then I remember Vietnam. I had to sign up. I had to, was in the last lottery for the draft, my, my age group, uh, to, to uh, register for the draft. And my lottery number was 427, I think, and so I didn't get picked, and, uh, and uh, we would have won the war if I had been picked. So. Uh, do you get the picture? I mean, these, to try to figure every detail out, Moses understood and the people of his generation, they understood. They knew what he was talking about. But what his point is, what he's trying to tell us is the world was plunging into a complete and utter decreation, deconstruction. And then look at the bitter comparison. This... I hope I can communicate this in the next five minutes. I want to get this part across because if you, if you get this, you see the heart of what the book of Genesis is going towards. If you get just this, listen, please. There's a bitter comparison that you see here in the text that should jump out at us, but unfortunately I think many of us just breeze right over it. But I'm going to point it out and, and then you take it you take it down inside and you see what you can do with it, okay? Look at verse 5. The Lord saw. The Lord saw. Now, where did you hear that phrase? In fact, it's exactly the same phrase. Where did you hear that phrase? Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. The Lord saw, he's looking, And he looks at his creation, everything he's made, and he said it is good and what? Very good. The Lord saw. Now, chapter 5, just a couple chapters later, he's looking. The Lord saw. What did he see now? What is he looking at? What is this bitter contrast that Moses is putting out to you where the world should have been, we should have gone from the garden into Eden and made it a garden and gone from, the, from Eden into the world and made it a garden. Instead of that, what is he seeing? He's seeing deconstruction, decreation. 
proliferation of evil. Great. Look at the words he uses. It's, it's obvious, but we skim over it, I think, and I, I think I know why, and I'll tell you in a second. He saw great wickedness. He saw every intention and thought of the heart only to do evil continually. Look at how he is piling up these adjectives and these words to say that there was no good anymore. That evil had taken control of the world on a cosmic scale with possibly even cosmic, demonic, angelic intervention in some way that was influencing mankind to a degree that has never been and never been since. And here's the key. Look, folks. Look at 6 and 7. Let this wash over you. The Lord regretted that he made man. It grieved him to his heart. He said, I am sorry that I made them. What in the world is going on? Isn't God like God and, you know, doesn't have all this stuff going on? And the fact is that theologically we know that these are truths, but we have to address them somehow. So in, in our theology class, if you don't come at 9 o'clock, you should, because a lot of fun. We have some good discussion. But I was telling the class this morning that we often, you, we say this is anthropomorphic. It's taking an attribute of, of, of man and applying it to God so that we can understand it. And all that is true. It is anthropomorphic. But God chose those words from your and my feelings, your and my emotions, your and my uh, pathos. He chose those words so that we could understand His position, His view of what had happened. And it is not one where God is standing up there and He's just wagging His finger and He's mad and He's angry. And, and you hear people all the time saying, Oh, this God, He's just filled with wrath and He's filled with this and that. How dare people say that? And don't you listen to it. It's a lie. It's a lie straight from hell. And it's a lie that smells like smoke. God is not a God of wrath. He's a God of love and compassion. A God of grief a God of pain, a God who sees what's happening to you and me in this cosmic realm where it's all going down and it pains Him. In some way, I don't know, mysteriously, I don't know how it happens. You don't really see how it happens until Jesus comes and then you see it. A man who weeped, a man who cried, a man who felt pain, a man who was lashed, a man who was beaten, a man who was drowned by the floods of God's judgment. And we read this and we think, oh God, he's so mean, he's going to wipe everybody out because he says I'm going to blot them out. Is it an anthropomorphism? Is that all it is? No, it's infinitely more than that. He's telling you something about you. He's saying something about him too, but he's saying something about you. He feels regret, grief, pain, sorrow, love, compassion, faithfulness, goodness, and holiness, justice, righteousness. He can't let, like Brueggemann said, he can't let the the world keep going into chaos. 
What would have happened? There was nothing to stop it. There was no safety net. They were, they were on the trapeze up there, you know, in a circus. Remember trapeze? And they would take the net away and everybody would go, <gasps> because if they fell, they were going to hit the ground and it was really the scary moment, you know, and so they pulled the net away. This is the world with no net. And they're up there fooling around, you know, dogs and cats marrying each other. Never mind, you guys. Ghostbusters, one. Dogs and cats marrying each other. Utter chaos. All right. There's something breathtakingly beautiful about the fact that God chooses to express to you and I that He understands and feels your pain, your grief, your sorrow, your hurt. That He knows it. And he doesn't just know it up here. He knows it. Look at Jesus Christ. Look at that man. He knew. I had to put my commentary, I have a confession to make. I put my commentary, when I hit this, I put my commentaries aside and I just sat in my chair and I lifted my hands and I just worshiped God for a while. It struck me so hard that we're not talking about a God of wrath. We're talking about a God who absolutely loved His good creation and everything in it. And we were deconstructing and destroying it to the point where everything was going to be lost. And so look at into this staggering reality, into this. God speaks a word. One word. And it's in verse 8. But God found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I'm sorry. Noah found favor. The word favor in Hebrew just is the word for grace. Noah found grace in God's eyes. Not because of anything he had done. And you see that later. I can explain it if you want to come next week to the Q&A. But he found grace in God's eyes, Noah. And that grace, that's the first time we see grace introduced in the Bible. St. Augustine asked this question, and I'll try to be brief, but everyone has a question about evil. You know, you think, I don't know if you see stuff on the news, and, and just this thing that happened in El Paso a few weeks ago with this horrible shooting. And it's come home, it's here in our little, little West Texas town. You see it elsewhere and you think it'll never happen here and then it happens. You think that thing will never happen to me and then it happens. And we ask, why? Why is there evil? Why is God allowing these things to happen? What's going on here? What is the nature of evil? And theologians and scholars and philosophers have tried to address the problem of evil and there's, I don't know, a couple dozen explanations that I know of and Everybody's tried to answer them. All religions try to answer it. There's karma, there's kismet, there's you name it. Everybody trying to figure out why is evil here and how come it's coming into my life. St. Augustine said something, I think, I believe it's St. Augustine, it's very helpful, that evil, just basic evil, is nothing. It's a, an absence of something. It's not a thing in and of itself. It's a deprivation of good. Now, you can poke holes in that if you want to, and many 
many philosophers and scholars have, but I think it does teach us one good thing that we can take away from this. That the earth was made good. God did not create darkness. He simply separated darkness from light. He created light. And that that darkness has always been to this day a metaphor for evil. And into that darkness, into that void, God said, light. And then Jesus said, light. And all the apostles said, light. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. In other words, if the world is plunging into darkness, you light it up. If it's going into death, you preserve it. If it's going into destruction, you go and save it. You bring it back. They'll know that you're my disciples because of the love you have for one another. Not just one another in this room, but everybody out there who we are bound to love, we must love. How is God asking you and me to live? Let me just finish with this. He was telling Moses this story for Moses to tell the children of Israel who were getting ready to enter into the land of Canaan Think about it with me for a minute. I know it's been at it now 35 minutes, but listen. This group of people are out there. How many? We don't know. Maybe a couple million are out there and they're getting ready to go and the stories are being told around the campfire and the story is our ancestors came out of Egypt and Egypt was ruled by a serpent whose name was Pharaoh Have any of you seen Pharaoh's hat? What's on the top of his hat? It's a serpent. They had all these gods and goddesses and they were all animals and you know, stuff and you know, these mixed up conglomerations of human and divine or human and animal or animal and divine. All this mixture. Do you see it? And he's saying, I brought you out I'm, I'm just getting ready to tell you a story about the flood. And, and remember how he brought us out from the serpent through the flood? He separated the water, the flood, the chaos, the sea, the tohu v'bohu, the, the formless, the void. He opened it up and we walked through on dry land. you remember that? Well, guess what? Tomorrow we're going to invade Canaan and we're going to go straight to the main city of Jericho, which was a a hotbed of pagan idolatry and, and worship of everything under the sun. And tomorrow God's going to do this for you. He's going to send, His ark is going to go before us and His priests are going to be carrying the ark and they're going to step into the Jordan River at flood time and it's going to open for you and you will cross Jordan just like you came out of Egypt through the flood. We will preserve you. God is saying to Moses and, and, and the people of Israel, God will preserve you from the flood of judgment. He will take you into the promised land through the sea and save you on the other side. And Peter picks it up. God's patience waited, listen, in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. 
in which a few, eight persons, were brought safely through the flood, through the water. Baptism corresponds to this. It saves you now. Not removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God of her good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see it. Who's gone into heaven at God's right hands. Angels and authorities and powers subjected to Him. The, the Old Testament and New Testament is telling us, those of us that are facing the flood one of God's judgment and wrath against evil and unrighteousness. Secondly, the flood of everyday chaos in your lives, the troubles we experience. And he's saying, Jesus is saying, I'm that ark. I'm the one that actually went into the real flood. I'm the one that actually got crushed and drowned by the water in the grave. I was in the grave. I was under the sea. Will you trust me? Will you go out, bring salt and light, go into the flood without fear that it will overtake you? We're living in a time of chaos, folks, where people are killing it. They go into a Walmart and willy-nilly just shoot anybody. Anybody that's there. Merciless. And what God has said is, I am going to create, I am going to stop evil. I'm going to come back in and make a new creation. I'm going to do it through Abraham, and then I'm going to do it through his greater son, Jesus. And you can escape the flood through this man if you will trust him. And I hope you do. Next week, we'll look at it a little bit more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, even though we're living in a world that is filled with chaos and, uh, and judgment, we know that your restraining hand has entered this world and is not going to let it go into utter and complete deconstruction. That come what may, we know that we have an ark, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that he lives and moves in us and through us. That he took the punishment, the flood of God's wrath against evil and injustice so that we could live with open hands and open hearts even to our enemies and blessing them. We know, Father, that we don't do that very well and we ask for your help and strength. Help us to follow you and to do righteousness in your sight as, Mo as Noah did and all the saints that followed him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.